Hello and welcome back to The Bunker, your underground panic room of politics from the makers of Romaniacs. Please wash your hands. I'm Dorian Linsky. On this week's podcast, as the coronavirus crisis worsens, are we getting an object lesson in what happens when governments try to exercise total control over the spread of information? Meanwhile in the US primaries, Mayor Pete is out, Diamond Joe is back in the game, but is Bernie still the one to beat? And with right-wing comedy back in the headlines, with South Park the patient zero for our world of edgelords, shitposting and performative cruelty. All this and more in this week's edition of The Bunker. Hello, it's very exciting to make my bunker debut, try to get through 45 minutes without saying Brexit. Before we start, <laughs> don't forget the first ever live pod clash between the bunker and Romaniacs in London on Thursday, the 2nd of April. Tickets went on sale last week at LeicesterSquareTheatre.com and they're selling like hot EU-protected designation cakes. <laughs> I'm doing the Romaniacs half of the show with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. The panel for the bunker half is Ahir Shah, Ros Taylor and Andrew Harrison. And we'll be announcing special guests for both segments very soon. So get your tickets now at LeicesterSquareTheatre.com. Let's meet today's panel. Also making her bunker debut, it's comedian, writer, former New Labour spin doctor, narrator of the Londoner Diary in the Evening Standard, general woman about town, it's Aisha Hazarika. <laughs> I like that, woman about town. Well, you... I, mean, I, would, I would vote for girl, but I'll take woman. <laughs> Gentle woman about town, I'll take that. Well, you were hanging out with Prince Harry, who seemed extraordinarily tall in the picture that I saw. <laughs> Like a giant man. I'm just very, very <laughs> short. Um, no, it was all very exciting. I turned uh, Prince Harry from a prince into a commoner. I have that amazing effect on people. It's like the reverse Midas touch, basically. <laughs> I really tried to... It's like downward social mobility. So what? how is the, the Harry, formerly known as Prince, getting on? <laughs> I don't, we're not texting. <laughs> No, I mean, it's, it's, I've tried to text him, obviously, but you know, <laughs> it's not like a restraining order and all of that kind of thing. Um, as a former special advisor to Harriet Harman and Ed Miliband, um, obviously the Labour leadership contest is, is right up your alley. Um, how do you feel about the way it's played out so far? So at the beginning, I was like really optimistic about it. And I was like, hooray, we've got a chance to really sort of wipe the slate clean and have this period of reflection and and try and sort of come together. But I sort of feel like it's going on and on and on. And the longer it goes on, I think the worse it's discrediting like the whole Labour movement now, because I just feel that each candidate set out their stall so early Lessons aren't really being learned about why we lost the election. Everybody seems to have um, retreated into a comfort zone. And we're doing the thing, which is actually the reason we lost the election. We're just talking to ourselves and we're just retreating to our safe spaces about, you know, how Labour people should feel better about themselves. So we're not actually addressing any of the hardships. And I just feel that we're also like going into massive, like weird cul-de-sacs on things like giving every member like a like if you know if Richard Bergen was like the Prime Minister like he gets, he gets a 3am call and um, he's then going to set up like a conference call with like 500,000 Labour Party members to decide what to do about <laughs> going to war like it's just like completely ludicrous <laughs> like, get out of bed Richard Bergen wants to know if we should bomb Iran <laughs> what uh, sorry can so- could you could somebody go on mute like is, is somebody like in their car it's just like oh my god like you know and it's not you know he's not the only one there is no limits and kind of like absurd idea. Ros- 
Rosanna Allen Khan, who's somebody who I really, really like, had a completely bonkers idea, which is she would put herself up for re-election again after 12 months, so we'd go through the whole thing again. And again, I just feel that everyone is just pandering to the members. And look, I'm a big believer in making members feel empowered, but you don't join a political organisation just to satisfy your members. You have to pivot out to it, but you've got to win power. You've got to think about the public. And at the moment, you know, I, I, I mean, I wrote an article last week in The Standard and I said, look, once this is over, and I say this as a member, I shouldn't matter for the for the foreseeable future. It's not about me. It's not about the members. It's about making us like respectable and mm. sort of trustworthy to the public. Again, I think we're all having such a lovely time. We have forgotten that there are these people out there called voters that we need to try and connect with at some point. Uh, well, we may be talking about selectorate versus electorate issues uh, elsewhere later on. Um, before that, it's Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk, author of the upcoming book, How to Be a Liberal. Hello, Ian. Hello. Hello. Um, so, at the weekend, we had the surprise resignation of Sir Philip Rutnam, Priti Patel's permanent secretary. Oh, yeah. That was quite enjoyable, um, wasn't it? That was actually quite a nice way to spend the weekend. And the exciting... Like aliens versus Predator, <laughs> and you're just like, you're just all so awful, and it gives me tremendous joy to watch you well, kill Well, the exciting sight of right-wing uh, journalists suddenly discovering identity politics, <laughs> just being like, oh, you're only having a go at her because she's an Asian woman. Uh-huh. I was like... Oh, now! Mm. Now you care oh, about this that. this is an it's old trick from specific, those guys, right? it's, But it's specifically Pretty Patel. Mm-hmm. It's only Pretty Patel-related identity They do politics. a similar thing with um, animal rights. Have you ever noticed how concerned they become by animal rights whenever you start talking about... Um, well, you know, the, the sort of slaughter techniques that you might have by different religions. It's like suddenly like, oh, no, absolutely not. I just can't abide if an animal struggles in any way, shape, or form. It's the same old shit. Um, so there's, there was also... Uh, News of a, a settlement over bullying against Bertie uh, Patel. How much trouble do you think she's in? In quite a bit, I think, right now. I mean, they're, they're, they're gunning hard to keep her safe. So yesterday, Tory MPs spent an awful lot of time in the House of Commons standing up and being like, I can absolutely say that, you know, the future results of whatever investigation it is that will take place in the future will definitely be completely fine because I have complete confidence we're obviously, you know, whipped up by the whips. So you're sort of getting the reverse process of what I thought, think we saw with John Burko. Do you remember when we had John Burko on uh, Romaniacs a few mm. weeks back? We got a lot of messages on Twitter going like, how can you have him on when he's accused of bullying? And I sort of think like, well, the investigation hasn't happened yet. And it hasn't happened in her case and it hasn't happened in his. What makes me a bit nervous is this idea of like, right now you have Tory MP saying he, she absolutely has nothing to worry about. We'll worry about the investigations later. With John Burke, you get this thing of like, he, he was condemned on that side of the debate mm-hmm. before the investigation takes place. And on lots of the Labour side, it was like, he absolutely hasn't done anything until the investigation takes place. You sort of think in each case, you're like, well, let's just a- actually find out what is going on and then we can actually have these conversations. Well, it's just the relentless partisanship of, of everything, isn't it? It's, it's that nothing, it, no, no allegation or no identity issue sort of matters unless it serves the purpose of your faction. Yeah. Um, somebody who would know about um, study partnership <laughs> up close, a special guest, Brian Class, UCL, Assistant Professor of Global Politics and host of the Power Corrupts podcast, season two out now. Hello, Brian, welcome. Hello. So do you look at the British government uh, attacking the civil service and think, oh, how cute, you little babies. <laughs> <laughs> come, come, come to America and see how it's really done. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's I've, I've lived over in the UK for almost 10 years, and the last three or four have been one of these moments where you just cannot escape the train wreck on either side of the Atlantic mm. if you're an American living in London, right? Because you look at home and everything's a mess, and then you look across mm. the Atlantic, it's worse. Um, and I think that there's this moment where when Trump was rising and Trump became president, Brits would say, oh, you know, we would never have anything like this. This could never happen in our <laughs> country, you know? And then there's these little echoes of it, and I don't think it's the same. I think it's worse in the U.S., but I I do think that I feel like a bit of deja vu that there are there are norms that shift expectations that shift things become normal that weren't normal before and that's how it happens so I you know I don't think it's going to get as bad as it did as it has in the US here but it is uh, it's like I've seen this film before so just imagine uh, Trump wins re-election so you end up with eight years of Trump do you think that all of those, I mean, certain norms don't survive, but in terms of the institutions, do you think that they still, that have held up largely so far, do you think that it gets much harder for them to hold up in a second term? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, so I study authoritarian populism. And when you look at this, the second term is always worse than the first because the person feels that the shackles are off, the constraints are off, they get more bold. Um, the analogy, I wrote a book in 2017 about Trump and I was prophesizing what would happen. And I, I use this analogy of a sandcastle for democracy. So it takes a little while to make one that looks very basic with a, you know, a pail and a shovel. It takes a really long time to make an award-winning sandcastle. That's what democracy is. But you can chip away at it little by little with, you know, waves that take a few grains of sand here, a few grains of sand there. Uh, I think that the U.S. will be a lumpy mess of sand in uh, 2024 if Donald Trump is, is reelected. I think the institutions will be badly broken. They're already in serious need of repair, but they're going to be washed away in much more significant ways uh, if there's another five years, um, and I, by which I mean from from now. Um, so it's it's really very, very worrying, I think. And, you know, the, the, the point about the shackles being off is important because when Trump felt he was exonerated from the Mueller report and Mueller testified, it was literally the next day that he called Ukraine's president, right? Mm-hmm. And that's when he... Uh, unleashed the impeachment investigation on himself when he was feeling that he was exonerated from impeachment the day after he was acquitted in the Senate. That's when he started purging the Department of Justice and the lawyers. So, you know, I mean, he he responds to exoneration or his perceived exoneration by being much, much worse. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen if he wins. The coronavirus continues to unfold like the first 20 minutes of a disaster movie. The number of deaths worldwide has exceeded 3,000. Cases have been confirmed as far afield as Indonesia, Iceland, Portugal and Armenia. A pan-European coronavirus response team has been established. Most importantly, pop fans in Southampton were warned not to touch or take selfies with Peter Andre. <laughs> leading Twitter to point out that Peter Andre has a stronger coronavirus policy than the government. <laughs> Some are suggesting we would be a lot further ahead of COVID-19 if China were not such a closed society which fears the spread of information even more than a virus. While other people are suggesting that unchecked misinformation makes things just as difficult in the opposite direction. That's because people are terrible. Brian, going back to where this all started, the Chinese government um, cracking down on social media, virtual private networks, um, how much of a problem has... You know, is it when you have a really serious kind of threat like this, um, when you're restricting the free flow of information? 
I think it's extremely serious. I mean, we, we, we talked to people who have studied the Spanish epidemic, the Spanish flu in, in 1918. Um, they talk about how the lack of information, even in democracies, made that much, much worse. Um, and actually, it's a sort of an injustice that's called the Spanish flu because it existed in other parts of the world before Spain, but they the governments lied about it um, and they, they cracked down on information. So it's a, it's a misnomer. But I think, you know, I think there's trade-offs here. So in authoritarian governments, you don't have information that's good during the initial stages of the outbreak. That means that you can't fix things quickly. Once the outbreak becomes severe, there might be some small benefits of authoritarianism in the sense that they can do heavy-handed tactics like quarantine or building a hospital in eight days. I, mean, I think all, all things being equal, you want to live in a democracy, right, in, in, in every way. <laughs> um, I'm very pro-democracy. So uh, it's – but, but – sorry. You came out the closet on that. Yeah, well, it's, no, but it's a bit of – it's no, one of those yeah, – uh, at least they made the trains run on time situations yeah, where mean, they, you know, they, they build the hospitals very quickly and – yeah, and, and this, this happened, I mean, this is the point that China makes with the SARS epidemic, is they built a series of hospitals in eight days with a thousand beds and all that. But I mean, I think one of the things that we're realizing now that we're having to face coronavirus, we don't know about it because the data was bad, right? So so you can't get good information about how the virus spreads exactly because the doctors who were you know raising the alarm bells back in the first parts of the outbreak were arrested, right? And there's, there's bizarre videos in Chinese social media of people who violate quarantine being tied to poles and having people shout at them uh, to humiliate them publicly. I mean, there's very weird dynamics of authoritarianism around pandemics. And uh, yeah, I think I think that... We're thinking of doing that in the Labour Party, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so. I thought that was the final stage of the leadership. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. That's, that's what the yeah. leaders, that's what's going to happen to us. It's time to ask tough questions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Rotten fruit at people. <laughs> You're five a day. <laughs> But there's a curious case of the Iranian government um, having to be more authoritarian in response to this sort of nonsense about kind of, you know, folk remedies that that weren't going to help and going to make things worse. The anti-vaxxers, obviously the world's best people, uh, are up to their bollocks. Um, Does the free flow of information increasingly mean in a social media age the kind of free flow of this often sort of very dangerous bullshit and, you know, the question has been asked about around anti-vaxxers, so I think, for, for a few years now, particularly when there was a kind of measles epidemic in, in the States uh, last year, um, was just like, well, how, how authoritarian do you have to be? You know, how censorious do you have to be? Yeah, I mean, the, the anti-vaxxing is extremely disturbing. Trump is an anti-vaxxer, by the way. If you look at his Twitter history, um, he, he has made many false claims about vaccines in the past. But I think the Iran example and then going into the U.S. is very interesting. So there, there was a, a press conference that Iran held with, like, the right-hand man of, of the minister coughing the entire time and saying everything is fine, and then he has coronavirus, <laughs> right? I mean, it's so uh, literally, like, sweating and, like, wiping his face as he's saying nothing to worry about. And then the next day he had it. Um, And in the US, you have, you know, some, I think, pretty disturbing stuff with Mike Pence being put in charge of the uh, of the Mm -hmm. response. I mean, in 2000, literally only 20 years ago, he said that the idea that smoking kills people is fabricated by the political class and the hysterical media. Right. I mean, it's uh, it's a person who does not believe in science. 
and they're vetting information um, from the CDC to the Centers for Disease Control through the White House, which is exactly what you don't want to have, right? I mean, it's it's so funny you have this uh, these lines like, we've had enough of experts. I don't think many people who are looking for advice on the coronavirus mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. saying that right now, right? That this is exactly when we want experts to guide policy. So Also this, this, prayer. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and prayer. I'm, I'm sure prayer will be very effective. Can I add a bit on that? I mean, mm-hmm. there's a there's a... There's some reasons for optimism when you look at the analysis that people have done of conspiracy theories before the coronavirus stuff, that actually conspiracy theories work really well internally in a group because they're they're a kind of epistemic breakdown, right? Like, I mean, once you accept it, you won't take in any information from outside because it is disproved by virtue of the conspiracy theory. There's been this great stuff going on outside. However, between groups, refutation of conspiracy theories does work. So when they look at them emerge... Someone comes out, they refute the conspiracy theory, and actually that breaks it down. The only place it doesn't work is within the group. So with this stuff, you have some reason for some optimism, because when people come out with it and churn it out, actually we can refute it, and people are still more open than we think to hearing the refutation. The people it won't save are the people in those groups, which is unfortunate because, you know, those groups now have full control of the United States and Great Britain and various other major Western economies. But nevertheless, there's some reasons for optimism when you look at that kind of uh, study. Aisha, Boris Johnson's finally convened a Cobra meeting around this. Um, he's been somewhat an absentee uh, prime minister and uh, dad to be. Well, he's so busy. He's been news. very busy, been very busy. <laughs> baby show, like really busy. You know, um, like painting the spare room, like you know, baby re- yoga, like preparing himself, like you know, he's really busy. We don't know. He doesn't even need to. He doesn't even know how many rooms he needs, though. <laughs> we don't know which number this is. Right? You know, we've got baby dad at like you know, number ten. It's it's busy time. Um, do you think this looks quite bad, like the kind of the, the sort of absentee PM vibe uh, during the floods? I mean, is this is this going to sort of um, is this sending the right message that he doesn't seem well, to be around when you need him? Well, okay, no, that's a theme. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we really need to move on from procreation here. <laughs> um, but I suppose it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. It depends on like what faction you're in you know everybody is just weaponizing everything so you know during the floods there were right-wing commentators going it's actually brilliant that he didn't you know go to any of the flood affected areas because you know it's a very big distraction when when a prime minister or when the cameras turn up so it's really really um you know imperative that he doesn't do that except it was fine just when we were about to go to the ballot box then it was fine for him to sort of do that so everyone is putting their own spin on it The, the truth is I don't think, let's be honest, we are not living in a great golden age of deference towards our politicians. I don't believe, even if you are an ardent Boris Johnson supporter and you're dead nervous about coronavirus, you're going to see them be like, phew, daddy's home, everything's going to be like (laughs) fine. Like, you're not going to think that. And the truth is, we know, and even the most sensible people know, that number 10 don't have a clue what's going on. The Department of Health is really scrambling. Nobody really knows what is happening. You know, there's, in terms of, you know, you're hearing all these scraps of information the eye-catching bits of information are making the headlines in terms of, you know, are we going to have to turn sort of like bowling greens into, you know, makeshift cemeteries if things get really bad. You know, people are sort of piecing together this patchwork quilt of very fragmented, um, you know, information. And then I think the, the real problem with this particular virus is that 
it's sending a lot of mixed messages for a virus. This is why I'm not happy about this virus. Mm. It seems very confused in terms of who it is, like what it wants to do uh, and yeah. things like that. I'm like, are you going to kill everyone exactly. or not? I mean, it's quite something with the chief, the chief medical officers. Like, I think 90, 99.99999% of people are going to be okay. It's like, oh, like what was the whole point? You know, so people are so confused about it. And listening into sort of various like phone-ins, I think one of the things that is really stressing people out is just no one has a handle on the on the on the um, advice. So one woman rings up and goes, oh, "My son has just come. My oldest son has just come back skiing from Northern Italy and has been told to absolutely be in self quarantine and that he's really really dangerous and highly you know infected." But they've said the younger son, who's been playing with him like all weekend, is, is fine to go to school. So what is the official advice? And then there's all this other nonsense about just wash your hands for the length of time for the, you know, the ring cycle in Wagner and it's going to all be like absolutely <laughs> fine. And, you know, so people are just really, really, really... See, this is where I disagree. I'm, I'm normally with Brian on democracy, but I want a bit of a benign dictatorship. Right? I want someone to get a grip and just sort it out. Well, for the first time ever people actively wanted to hear from Matt Hancock, which caused the government to sort of suspend its its boycott of the Today programme. Um, Trump, as somebody who seems to be um, incapable of dealing with inconvenient facts, needs everything on his watch to be tremendously great and the best thing ever. Uh, he, he seems ill-equipped for a pandemic. Um, he has been a very lucky president in many ways a lot of things that there are things that have happened on previous presidents watches that you can only fucking scream in horror at the thought of what trump would have done it <laughs> trump on 9 11 oh example. my god i've can, never thought about that before oh, holy moly fucking <laughs> that is terrifying um and he really hasn't had to deal with much do you think that um that this is going to be a kind of kind of very big test for him i think it's the biggest test i mean he has dealt with a lot but he's he's made all the crises that he's dealt with right i mean that's the, <laughs> that's the difference this is the first one he hasn't made uh, i wrote a column that's exactly, know that. let's let's find yeah. out yeah i mean this I, I wrote a column about this last last july actually where i said you know every president going back has dealt with something they didn't do so you have you know george hw bush has the fall of the berlin wall right after he takes office you have Black Hawk Down in Somalia and the Rwandan genocide on Bill Clinton's watch right after he takes office. Then you have September 11th for George W. Bush. You have the financial crisis for Obama. Hmm. What's the equivalent for Trump, right? Hmm. And this is the equivalent. This is the moment where it actually matters to have somebody in power who doesn't think that every single event is about them, who doesn't try to shape events so that he can consolidate power, and who doesn't think that his hunches are better than information and evidence and experts. So, I mean, yeah, I, I've been saying for a long time that I think 2020 is the year that America's luck runs out and by by consequence the world's because it's bad to have someone like him in charge. I mean, that's the thing is you, you got in a way with a lot, but most of the stuff we've gotten away with is just because his own idiocy has not cut up to him, not because he's been unlucky or the world's been unlucky. I do think this is going to have a huge, huge part to play in the in the presidential election. Um, you know, it's the first time we see the stock market tumble in a big way uh, this this last week, and it's the only thing that Trump is holding together, right? I mean, there's a, there's a lot. 25% of the American electorate, maybe 30% of the American electorate loves Trump. There's another 10% that loves the economy under Trump. And that's the big thing that I think mm. is the question is, is what happens if that economy goes away? And, you know, I think we're, we're about to find out. Mm. 
It's Super Tuesday, when 14 American states vote which Democrat they would like to run against Donald Trump in November. A massive 1,357 delegates are up for grabs in states including California, Texas, North Carolina and Virginia. Over the weekend, Pete Buttigieg quit and Tom Steyer, if you remember him, and Amy Klobuchar. But Joe Biden, faltering until now, won by a landslide in South Carolina. It continues to bitterly divide America with public enemy firing Flavor Flav because the clock-wearing hype man wouldn't play a Sanders rally with Chuck D. I hate it when those two fight. I know. Now America will not know what time it is. (laughs) 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 Brian, what exactly is Super Tuesday and, and how long has it been super? Because the primary timetable has changed over the years, hasn't it? Yeah, it's 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 been referenced for 30 or 40 years, but it became a, a thing in 1988. And there was a big group of southern states that wanted to sort of, you know, aggregate their their power together and be one big voting block, um, trying to sort of balance out the fact that states like Iowa and New Hampshire have this big outsized influence because they're early. And so the idea was, well, if we're not early, let's at least be a lot of us um, and, and we'll we'll try to have a, a bigger, bigger uh, say in the process. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of the, the the California delegates up for grabs is the big prize. But Texas is a big one. North Carolina, Virginia, Minnesota, my home states today as well. Uh, and the big thing that I think is the takeaway here is this is a two-person race now. Um, it's 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 Biden or it's Bernie. That's mm. that's who's going to be uh, taking on Trump. And Biden has had a massive swing in the last three or four days as a result of South Carolina. The, the moderate part of the party has consolidated around him. He's gotten some serious endorsements uh, in the last 24, 48 hours. And uh, I think people who want to have a candidate that is not calling for a socialist revolution are all going to shift their their way behind Biden. And I think that's why he's in pretty good shape going into today. Did you, is, do you think that's why Buttigieg and Klobuchar dropped out? Because they thought, okay, like it's, it's sort of now or never for the moderate vote to coalesce. Yeah. And I think that uh, basically they didn't have a viable path. I, I think that there's only two candidates with a viable path. It's Bi- it's Biden and Bernie. Um, and they realized that and figured, let's let's get on the train, right? This is the, because th- now it's a question of who's going to beat Trump. Uh, and the moderates in the party think that Bernie would not win. So they figure, okay, I'll throw my weight behind him. We have now a shot to, to basically coalesce around a moderate and that will be Joe Biden. It is amazing though that the, um, the youngest uh, front runner in the in the race is seventy seven, right? So um, we have, yeah, we have because we have. Uh, I mean, the electorate, the Democratic electorate, is I think something like seventy five, seventy seven percent of it is either female, minority, or a millennial, and the two front runners are seventy eight and seventy seven year old white men. <laughs> and let's just hope the coronavirus doesn't get them basically. <laughs> yeah, well, especially I mean, Bernie. Bernie is it? So old. Imagine yeah. how many hands you shake. Bernie is actually older than a boomer. Yeah. Uh huh. Wow. He's not even a boomer. What, is, he, what, he, what is above boomers? This just well, like, i.e., he was born post. between, but he was born mm. before 1945. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you see Aisha um, any echoes of the the Labour Corbyn scenario unfolding if they select Sanders, which is certainly, obviously, what a lot of people in the Democratic Party uh, are concerned about? It's, it's quite hard for us to watch, I think, without being reminded of certain similarities. Yeah, I think there are huge um, similarities. I mean, I think, you know, Bernie has got lots of similarities with Jeremy Corbyn, you know, his appeal to young people, you know, obviously they're kind of, you know, being the sort of out and proud socialist. But, you know, we kind of know how that story 
ends. We've seen it play out in this country, an ageing socialist going up against a big blonde right wing sort of bombshell. Mm. I mean, it doesn't go particularly well. I mean, I just my anxiety is, is that and I'll be interested to hear from from Brian on this. I mean, I was listening to a lot of Vox Pops from people saying, uh, I'm voting for Bernie. I'm really, really happy to be voting for Bernie. I think he's a great guy. We've got to change the script in terms of our economics and stuff. Next question, do you think he'll beat Trump? No, not in a million years. <laughs> and, and I felt that, to me, that was very, very similar to, as a Labour person, that's very similar mm. to the experience I feel here. But, you know, Brian, who do you think, I mean, do you think Biden would have a shot? Would, would have you have a better shot at taking on Trump than, than Sanders? Yeah, I mean, I think with the Corbyn-Sanders comparison, there's, uh, Sanders is not Jeremy Corbyn. He's more, he's more to the right of Corbyn. But the U.S. is more to the right of Britain, right? Mm -hmm. The U.S. is a more right-wing country than Britain is. So um, there are parallels. I think what it comes down to when you think about 2020 election, there's six states that will decide this election. And in those states, they're very culturally different, right? You have everything from Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, Florida, places that are very different. One thing that they're all in common, they're ideologically moderate. And that is why I think when you look at the polling, the general election polling, Biden is doing very well there. And there's other things that sort of, you know, the echoes of Corbynism where you have this criticism of uh, an inability or a sort of favorability towards left-wing dictatorships of the past. When Sanders was asked recently about past comments about Cuba, uh, he had positive things to say. In time, he said, no, it's not great, but there were some parts of it that were good. That cost the Democrats Florida, right? Because Florida has a huge mm-hmm. Cuban population. So I, I also, I wrote this column recently about uh, Minnesota, where I'm from, the Southern District of Minnesota. It's, it's a district that Trump won by 14 points, but it's a 50-50 district for the House. So the Democrats held it in 2016. They lost it by a point in 2018. The Democrats picked the perfect candidate for the race, which was a Iraq war veteran who had been awarded multiple you know, medals in Iraq, who was calling for free market economics in order to allow the farmers to you know, make money after the trade war that Trump's putting all this protectionism in. The Republican line against him was that he was a socialist who was not patriotic because he once <laughs> tweeted in support of Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem. Wow. Right. But think about that. That worked. That's why the guy lost. But think about what happens if the attacks actually ring true. Right. So if you label somebody a socialist who says they're a socialist, if you label somebody an unpatriotic American who actually says, well, the Soviet Union wasn't so bad, mm-hmm. there were some parts of it that were good. That's not going to play well in the ideologically moderate states. And when you think about the election, it does not matter what happens in California in November. It does not matter what happens in New York. It does not matter in all of the, you know, in Alabama for the Republican side. It matters what happens in the six states that are going to decide between Trump and whoever the Democrat is. And I think Biden is better ideologically fit for those states. Hmm. Ian, in terms of the campaigns, like, Sanders is much more... uh it's a much more sort of energetic presence. There's this exciting sort of movement behind him. Um, it's not as if, I think the problem, perhaps the kind of, I suppose, the anti-Bernie sort of camp Democrats have had, is they don't have the ideal candidate. Mm-hmm. I thought they would be. I mean, I'm a kind of, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren sort of fan, but that, mm-hmm. that, that ain't, is not happening. Mm. Um, and it just seems like, and obviously she is on, she's on the left, so she wouldn't be the, the moderate candidate, but they don't seem to have someone. So they, they've, they've ended up with... After all these other people have dropped out, all these people they were excited about, from like Beto O'Rourke to Boudicca's Kamala Harris, they've got Joe Biden, who sometimes... <laughs> I mean, what do you make of him as a kind of campaigning force? Can you imagine... How do you imagine if he became the nominee, how that would play out? 
I don't know, and I don't know enough about American politics to answer that, but I was sort of thinking about the version of him that was in the same way as I was thinking about Keir Starmer, right? Like, this thing of, like, if you get someone that looks sensible when the incumbent looks like they're extremely chaotic and all over the place, can that work? Because for the last few years, we've been thinking, no, it won't, right? We've been thinking, you know, the the authentic-looking sort of guy that looks like he's going to shake everything up, that's the guy that will work. Now, in some places, none of us really know, there can be that thing, if you get to a chaotic situation where everything's up in the air and the person in charge doesn't look like they have a real handle on what's happening, maybe someone more sensible and a bit more grave and a bit more boring, frankly, might work. But don't know. Well, we haven't mentioned Bloomberg, of course, who, who seems like the person who, you know, I'm like, vote for whoever can beat Trump. You know, vote for whoever the Democrat candidate is. But I find it very hard to imagine looking a Bernie supporter in the eye and going, vote for Mike Bloomberg. They wouldn't even come out and vote for Hillary, you know. They were so kind of... um, Hmm. But then the sort of wild card, like completely bonkers aspect of Mike Bloomberg, there's something about me which is like, I'm kind of here for that. Because there is, you know, there's there's part of me that thinks, how do you even try to take on Trump? And I don't think any of the candidates are going to be particularly good at it. I take your point about Joe Biden. He is probably the most kind of, you know, um, uh, patrician sort of old school. But I don't know if people actually do sort of Mm. want that. And there's Mm. part of me that thinks, well, maybe you have to put somebody up against Trump who's as crazy as Trump as well. And I was just loving their kind of trash talking to each other on, on, on Twitter. And I thought... Maybe this is the contest we need in America. Maybe maybe this is actually what this has all been leading up to. And maybe it would just be a bit more honest, just have two kind of completely bonkers billionaires just going at it. I feel at least there's some honesty about it. And I feel really depressed about the state of politics generally, definitely on this side of the pond. But you look at America and you think, my God, you know, it's bad enough here. But, you know, with all the the talk of the AOCs and, oh, you know, great, we've got these grassroots. You know, here we have probably the most important political race on the planet and it's dominated by billions, it's dominated by Mm. old white men, it's dominated by the media, it's dominated by, you know, a kind of financial establishment figures. And it is, it's intensely, it's intensely depressing. I mean, I had a little bit of, you know, there were kind of glimmers of hope. I mean, I'm a big fan of Elizabeth Warren. I think she is fantastic. But how depressing is it that yet again, you know, she's got kind of nowhere. She's, she's, she's great. She's smart. She's progressive. She's not crazy. She's, she's a great candidate. And you just think, wow. And I'm afraid politics on this side of the pond is aping American politics more and more and more. And it does feel pretty depressing that that's, and that's why I just think, fuck it, let's just go, let's just, let's just have the most mad, like, you know, let's just, let's just, let's just be honest about the insanity. Let's just properly look, let's look into the abyss (laughs) of morality, of democracy. Don't you think think Democrats would be quite happy with like a Starmer? A Starmer sort of figure who seems he's, he's sort of he's, he's sort of left, but he's sort of he's isn't, sing, that, what mess, get, isn't that what Biden is? Modern. I mean, I, am I no, but like, I mean, no, but like age, like not you know, oh, like right. twenty five oh, but younger. Yeah, yeah, look, <laughs> <laughs> back like, to the future, imagine. yeah, that's great. Yeah, just yeah. like a da, yeah, maybe like a de-aged Biden. But it seemed to me that the Starmer was kind of like, oh right, okay, so you you get to have this, these policies, but you get to have this. You, mm-hmm. Without this baggage, and it just seemed like the Democrat race somehow has ended up without anyone. 
Yeah, and, and none of them. I, mean, I, have, I have to say, even including I, I, when I, I tweeted out the other day of saying, well, look, just for the record, none of these guys look particularly fantastic. To me, as a punter, sort of, you know, I don't bring any particular knowledge to it. And I got a huge wall of Warren fan just being like, don't rule around Warren. So I get it. I see that there's like de- definite passion there. I'm, I am a bit aghast by the, by the quality that I see on stage, just in terms of how they come across. And I kind of thought, even though our Labour leadership race has been shoddy and they're not addressing the stuff, when I look at the quality of candidates, if I look at like sort of Lisa Nandy, yeah. if I look at, you know, I mean, you just think, well, these are, these are, I'm, I'm making a notable omission there, but, but apart from that, I think, you know, these are impressive people who are, who yeah. are running for this Is thing. it the one been... with the badges? <laughs> Is that the omission? <laughs> the one with the badges? <laughs> Have a badge. The, the rector of an important new learning uh, establishment. <laughs> no need to name him or her. <laughs> Finally, we live in a shit-posting, edge-lording world of cry-laugh emojis and triggering the snowflakes. Is it all South Park's fault? Mm. When it appeared in 1997, Trey Parker and Matt Stone's crudely animated story of kids being horrible to one another in small-town Colorado was fresh and irreverent. Add 20 years and the advent of social media and crossing the line for its own sake has become a new orthodoxy. Did South Park help turn saying the unsayable from a comedy virtue into a license to pick on marginalised people? And is it part of the culture that gave us, effectively, President Cartman? <laughs> Aisha, were stroke are you a fan of South Park? Yeah, I was a massive fan of South Park. I absolutely loved it. I haven't watched it for a long time. And it's only when it does something controversial that I'm reminded that it's still going. And I probably think, that's a bit weird. Why is it still going? Because I think Hmm. satire is often of its time. And the best satire knows when to um, finish. But I, I, I did like it. And I, and I, I don't know, I'm, I'm quite a lefty person, obviously. But I do... Everyone's coming out the closet today. Uh, you know, <laughs> you love you? democracy. <laughs> Turns out you're a lefty. Breaking, <laughs> breaking. Um, but I do, as a as, so, so somebody who goes to the Edinburgh Festival all the time, I'm like, you know, seeing a lot of comedy, I'm consuming a lot of comedy, I'm with a lot of comedians. I have to say, I do get a bit fatigued by left-wing comedy. Mm. And I think there is, you know, it's quite samey. And I do yearn for sometimes just a bit of variety. And I think the best satire should take the piss out of everything. It should be an equal opportunity opportunity sort of um, endeavour. So I'm probably a kind of... So, for example, I'm weird in the sense that the probably the thing that I didn't love it all, but the thing I probably laughed at most at the Edinburgh Festival last year was Tatiana McGrath which I was like really quite surprised at because I kind of forced myself to go because I was like, oh, I've got lots of issues about this and but I should should make, you know, it's good to kind of go and see stuff. But some of it, some of it I really disagreed, but some of it was actually really, really funny. And I do think when Brexit was at its peak, I was really surprised that at the whole of the Edinburgh Festival, apart from one guy, Jeff Norcott, who's not even that right wing, mm-hmm. there was no pro-Brexit piece of art in the biggest arts festival on the planet. Mm. So it did make me think, you know, we've got to have a bit of variety. I mean, the the great test of, of good comedy, particularly satire, is if it makes you laugh and you're from a completely different political persuasion. Ian, do you think South Park is can be categorised as right-wing, left-wing, any wing? Like, where, where do you... Th- think that humour is coming from politically uh, the thing I always took from it it's been a while but the thing I always took from it was just this get the fuck out of my business fuck you that was the the politics I took of it which I which but I have quite a lot of time for that attitude I mean that's at the core of a lot of really decent wholesome liberal sentiment is just fuck off like I will do my own shit right now and pro- so probably in American terms you'd call it some kind of libertarian sort of angle if they have any mm. however 
this is this is my issue. That attitude of fuck both sides, which is the classic South Park thing, like fuck the liberals, fuck the conservatives. And I think there is an old quote from him, isn't there, where he says, I hate conservatives and I hate I hate fucking liberals too or whatever. I used to have a bit of time for that sort of thing. And now, increasingly, I just think, no, you know what? It's quite easy and quite lazy just to be like, fuck the lot of you. You've noticed I've said fuck the lot of you whilst making eye contact with you guys several times in the last minute. It's been enjoy- I've been enjoying it. Our body myself. language is really good right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's my coronavirus strategy. Yeah, I wish I risked that handshake earlier. <laughs> um, the, my trouble with that is, is ultimately, those guys... I'm not saying the South Park guys, but people who feel that way are not, for instance, Trump supporters, right? Because they, they don't have a big sort of thing against immigrants. However, they were very useful for what I think turned into the Trump thing because you're not standing by any particular value. And it takes guts to stand by a value. It takes some fucking steel to say, well, actually, there are things that I do believe in and that I do care about and that I will hold the line on. And most of the time, I don't see that kind of attitude when people descend into the fuck both sides kind of attitude. I I suppose the context that I'm wondering here, maybe I I could ask you, Brian, is the connection that people make. I'm sure if you know the Andrew Morant's book, Antisocial, where it connects the rise of Trump to the sort of cruel, cliquey kind of humour sort of toxic irony of places like 4chan um, and these memes like Pepe the Frog and this kind of fuck your feelings vibe of the alt-right. It doesn't seem unrelated to South Park. Now, as it happens, the last two episodes, I saw a couple of episodes the other night and they were they were sort of more kind of humane and in a weird way, sort of softer that there was something so sort of sort of broad about the kind of violence. It didn't seem to have that dark undercurrent. <laughs> but do you think that is the sort of... Do you think in some way that is where it sort of started? I mean, is it is it the Nirvana to the alt-right's Nickelback? <laughs> wow. Steve. Wow. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I can see you building up to that. Yeah, but I, just, <laughs> yeah no, I mean, I, I, think, I think there is some truth to the idea that this, this idea of just screw the establishment um, was something that South Park really unleashed. And there, there is, I think, a saying about Trump that, that is reasonably true, which is to say he will never be more guilty in the eyes of his supporters than the establishment he's attacking or the people that he's making feel bad, mm. right? Mm. This, that sort of idea. But I also think, I mean, with the politicization of comedy, if the thing that's different about the U.S. that makes this harder to avoid is that people just genuinely have different experiences. It's such a massive country. So you think about, like, country music in the U.S., right? It doesn't exist here. Well, it doesn't exist in coastal liberal elite circles either. But when you have top 40 music that says, you know, we're going to go and get the drinks in the club, and you're in Wyoming and the nearest club is 900 miles away, you know, it's like there's a different experience. And so I think with some stuff with comedy, you're supposed to tap into this like mutual understanding culturally that just simply doesn't exist among some enclaves of Trump supporters Mm. versus some people who live in, say, you know, Silicon Valley or Manhattan. And and that's where I think this is really accelerating is because Trump has activated that. He's got the sort of South Park people who say, screw the establishment. But, you know, he's also getting people who felt like they weren't part of pop culture or comedy for a very, very long time. And I think that's the difference with him. We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes. How are they escaping from the white noise of politics this week? What's taking their minds off it? Music, events, TV, books, or even other podcasts, some of which do exist. We'll be giving them a break this week. Uh, we'll start with you as our special guest, Brian. Uh, what's your escape valve? 
well, of course, my own podcast, Power Corrupts. Uh, I've been working on that a lot. But what's happening? Well, first, for sure. tell us what's happening in that. Sure. So we have an episode out this week uh, called American Troll. It's about a guy who has written viral fake news as a living. Uh, he lives in Southern Maine. You've probably read his stuff and not known it. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a, a, a series on uh, propaganda with an amazing story of a song uh, commissioned by the, the Customs and Border Protection Agency in the U.S. trying to convince people not to come north. And they didn't say it was paid for by them. So people were listening to it in Mexico and it was oh, wow. paid for Whoa. by the U.S. government. And then I also interviewed Simon Mann, who um, you know tried to overthrow the dictator of Equatorial Guinea. He founded or was one of the founding members of Executive Outcomes, that mercenary group. So lots of uh, stories there. In terms of my actual escape route, though, the most embarrassing thing that I, I, I do on the side I think is some people play fantasy football, fantasy baseball. I play. I also do fantasy bachelor and bachelorette, the uh, American reality show. I have been doing this for eight years. Uh, I usually win, uh, but I have had a cold streak the last three seasons. And as people are competing for Peter, the airline pilot's heart, I'm afraid that this season is not being kind to me. So like high, high stakes. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a cookie jar that is bachelor themed. It was my prize when I won the Juan Pablo season five years ago. So. <laughs> <laughs> Aisha, has Rika beat that? Well, I can't. That's like really. You think you know someone, Brian? Honestly, seriously. Um, um, so my. So what have I been reading? So I've been reading this very good book uh, by Sophie Walker, which is out this week, and it's called five rules for rebellion and it's how to change the world and I think Sophie Walker used to be the leader of the Women's Equality Party and she's a great feminist campaigner it's International Women's Day um, this running up to this week we get a day thanks everyone Um, and (laughs) thanks hope you enjoy Um, it we will it's on a Sunday as well which is like really great really good really good Um, so you can't even get into the pubs like it's great it's really good Um, but it's a great book because it's, it's, it's about look if you're fed up with everything right now all the stuff we've talked about right now if you're fed up with how politics is going how society is going what do you do how can you make a positive and meaningful contribution being um, a feminist activist and I loved it because it was not overly um, preachy it was really practical it's very warm and it's already also really honest about how exhausting it is to do this stuff if you're a sort of liberal sort of feminist right now you do feel really beaten down and it was not it was quite kind of realistic because it's not like hey you can win everything it's like this is just a really really long slog and it's okay to have moments where you just want to like lie at home and, and watch the bachelorette <laughs> it's fine. so that's what i did but i also physically tried to escape this weekend i went to eastbourne for the weekend it's a nice weekend by the seaside and it was like gale force winds and everything like that but the person i went with i was trying to relax i've been really busy and they've become obsessed with the corona virus they've got this app that updates like every time there's like a case or so we'd be at the spa and i'd be what? like who and they'd be like oh look there's another case in sort of you know northern italy and i was like i'm trying to relax so i felt very this, opposite of self-care yeah, yeah, i felt yeah. this app has been haunting me this coronavirus app <laughs> in the spa in the spa in have you found a way of messing with your own head 24 7 <laughs> <laughs> So my thing is, um, it's vinyl, really. So the missus got me a record player for my birthday. And 
I've never, I, so I have committed to it with a degree of excitement that I hadn't really anticipated. And I was trying to work out like, why the fuck? And it's part of it. I keep, I'm basically retreating from the modern world into, I mean, I'm like, I gave up my Kindle. I've got books. I've got a DVD, like rental delivery service that sends over the shit. I pick up my stack of, of weekly comics. I'm basically backing away. And I was thinking like, why is this happening? And I think it's the fucking incessantness of like Netflix, like one ends, another one starts, Spotify, a song ends, another one starts. It just feels yeah. like there's just content, just this relentless fucking yeah. barrage of content. Whereas when it isn't that, when I choose to put it on and it exists outside of the digital world, I've made a like a space for myself. And so I felt like, well, I'm going to listen to the thing that I am doing. I'm going to read the fucking book and I'm going to close things off. And when it stops, it is over. And I will then make another decision about what I do. And so basically that led to me like spending afternoons like sprawled on the floor with record sleeves listening to it and following along with the lyrics <laughs> which was like no I am very happy right now and I, there, will, there will be more of this to come I think yeah. that's good man I find myself shouting at Netflix where just let me watch the end credits oh my god you know when there's like a beautiful song choice a wonderful yeah. song choice and you just want to be the bit where you relax and then it just instantly at 10 seconds and it goes what sex education I want to watch like the end credits of Roma you Bastards! <laughs> You're ruining it! <laughs> and they're like, next! Next! Consume! More! More! <laughs> um, so I was reading a book by Michelle Dean uh, called Sharp, which is a series of profiles of um, just sort of like opinionated, I suppose, female writers that she's chosen Dorothy Parker, Joan hmm. Didion, Hannah Arendt. And it's good because she really, it's very elegantly written. Uh, they're good little kind of capsule sort of profiles. And it and it doesn't let any of them sort of off the hook. It's sort of admiring, but very kind of unflinching as well. And if it just, you know, if, if one of them just, you know, had made a terrible, you know, judgment call, wrote a really weird piece, fell out with so-and-so, there's a lot of falling out, then she'll say it. And there's a kind of, I, I do find that that's, that's the most sort of humane, empathetic approach, mm-hmm. I think, is to allow people to be kind of... Um, to be difficult as well as brilliant. And one thing which is kind of reassuring stroke sobering, if you're a freelance writer, is that even these people that we now revere, you know, they were kind of hustling for work. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the editors moved on and then said they couldn't get enough work, you know, which is something that every freelancer kind of knows. And then you go, Jesus Christ, you know, Dorothy Parker wasn't getting the work. No. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, I don't know. Is that just awful? Is that just awful news? Because I'm not as good as Dorothy Parker. <laughs> Maybe I should just give up now. Um, but there's just something very sort of human about, you know, they're not these kind of sort of great geniuses. They do this, you know, incredibly intelligent people. They do this wonderful work, some of which we still read and quote. And yet also they're kind of like hustling for that next byline and that next paycheck. And I find it very kind of relatable. Mm. So that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to our panel, Brian Class. Thank you. Aisha Hazarika. Thank you very much. And Ian Dunt. Thanks. <laughs> are we on Romaniacs together tomorrow? We are Romaniacs <laughs> together. <laughs> back, 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 Team Supreme. Remember, the Bunker versus Romaniacs, Thursday, 2nd of April. Tickets on sale at leicestersquaretheatre.com. We'll be back next week. Subscribe to The Bunker on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Twitter at Bunker underscore pod. And we're on Facebook too. Thanks for listening. See you next week. The Bunker was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt and Aisha Hazarika. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer is Jacob Archbold and the producer is Andrew Harrison. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>